word of the Lord uh, in regards to uh, our purpose of gathering for this particular Sunday. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll go to the word of the Lord. God, we thank you of that which we should do more of. We thank you again because of the every again and over again and every time we look around that you are doing something for us, looking out for us, taking care of us, providing for us. We thank you again. But in this moment in time that we've gathered for this worship service is to come before the Lord's table, to come as brothers and sisters, to come as a body of believers, to commemorate and to celebrate uh, his death. Uh, death for most of us is not a pretty thing. Death for most of us, if not all, bears with it much grief and pain. And even so on that night, that afternoon, when he gave up the ghost, when he commended his spirit to you, before he did so, he declared in clarity, triumph, and victory, the affirmation, it is finished. And it was his death that procured our redemption. And through his resurrection, it guaranteed God the effect of that death and the end of what it would always be for all of us. <clears throat> and that the death of a saint is precious yet in your sight. But in knowing God that that death is not the end, for you will all raise us up again. For every believer, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and forever to be with the Lord. And so as your word declares that as often as we do what we're going to do today, that we are proclaiming his death until he comes. And so, Father, I pray that as we look to your word, that you would give us great understanding, insight into its meaning, and certainly concerning his blood that was shed for our salvation. And we thank you for that. In his holy name, amen. If you would go with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12. I will begin reading at the seventh verse. Today I'm reading out of the King James Version, Exodus chapter 12. And it reads like this. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night. Roast with fire and unleavened bread, 
and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not, not of it raw, nor sodden, at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall not let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token or a sign upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, for you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. I want to draw your attention closely to the 13th verse again, and it reads, And the Bible, huh, and the blood, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt." just want to talk with you a little bit before we come to the Lord's table from the subject matter, the sign of the blood. I want to say that to somebody, the sign of the blood. Signs are a part and partial of everyday living. They are an essential element, very vital and integral components to help us navigate through life. I'm sure that some of you at some point in your pre-conversion uh, to the Christian lifestyle, especially during your teenage years, may have asked your friends, what sign are you? Anybody, y'all remember those days? You ask people, what sign are you? Referring to the signs of the zodiac, by which one sign was determined by the period which your birth date fell within. I'm not advocating that we should follow the horoscope and bring ourselves under any spiritual subjection to the stars and planets. For the word of God alone is what we subject ourselves to for daily guidance and living. For all of us who drove here uh, today, hopefully we carefully paid attention to the road signs. Uh, those signs serve the purpose of helping us to navigate to this particular location. Without those signs or having paid them any attention or following what they were communicating could have had some devastating consequences resulting possibly in an accident causing great damage to our vehicles and possibly loss of someone's life. The practice of what's known as the sign of the cross, that practice is most prominent in the Roman Catholic Church, but is also practiced practice in the Eastern Orthodox, the Lutheran, the Anglican, and Episcopalian churches. 
And the history of the sign of the cross goes uh, back as far as Tertullian, uh, who was one of the early church fathers who lived between 160 and 220 A.D. And Tertullian wrote, saying this, In all our travels and movements, in all our coming in and going out, in putting on our shoes at the bath, at the table, in lighting our candles, in lying down, in sitting down, whatever employment occupies us, we mark our foreheads with the sign of the cross, unquote. And way before American Express branded the slogan, never leave home without it. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all, some of you too young probably don't, don't know that. But way before uh, they branded that slogan, never leave home without it, one of the fourth century church fathers known for his preaching, John Chrysostom, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He wrote, never leave home without making the sign of the cross. Interestingly, this simple, small gesture embodies volumes of biblical and theological meaning. Over time, a switch was made from tracing a small cross on the forehead to the modern practice of tracing a larger cross from the forehead to the chest or the waist and shoulder to shoulder. Holding three fingers together, the thumb, the forefinger, and the middle finger, and making the sign symbolizes the Trinity while saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And the two fingers that are uh, pressed upon the palm, uh, those represent the two natures of Christ, uh, his human and divine nature, because Jesus was 100% human, and he was also 100% divine. And so those two uh, thumbs pressed upon the palm of the finger represented those two natures known in theological terms as the hypostatic union. So dropping the hand from the forehead to the chest or to the waist represents Christ's descent to earth. And the upward movement of coming back represents his resurrection. And so tell somebody signs mean something. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, tells us that in addition, uh, as sources of light, God created the heavenly bodies as lights, in quote, for signs and for seasons and for days and years, unquote. As signs, God created the heavenly bodies to enable humanity to mark time and to make our precise measurements. Throughout history, the stars have been relied upon to chart courses over the land and sea and also through the air, and in modern times also in space travel. So in looking at this passage in Exodus chapter 12, let's lay out the story and its theology, then see the meaning of the sign of the blood. At this juncture, uh, in our chosen passage, the Israelites have come to the point of making the exodus from their sojourning in the land of Egypt and being in bondage some 400 plus years. They are about to embark upon a new journey from Egypt to the promised land. Under the leadership of Moses and their contest against Pharaoh 
in expectation of God, making good on his promise to deliver them. And tell somebody, God always makes good on his promise. And so, under his leadership and expectation of God, making good on his promise to deliver them, Israel has witnessed and survived nine different types of plagues that were inflicted on Egypt. And we find those uh, plagues listed in that story, that part of the story in chapter 7 through chapter 11. The Nile River was turned to blood. And there were the plagues of frogs, the plague of lice, flies, all of Egypt's cattle dying, the plagues of boils, hail, locusts, and three days of heavy darkness in which the dwelling places of the Israelites are the only ones that had light, where everybody else was living in darkness. In actuality, this contest was really between the living God of Israel and the impotent deities or gods of Egypt. Through these plagues and their devastating effect on the land of Egypt, God was demonstrating his superior power in undermining the credibility and viability of the Egyptian idol gods. The power struggle has not come to the point when God is going to send his final ultimate blow upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians with a plague of death upon the firstborn, not only of their children, but also the firstborn of their animals. This is found in chapter 11, verse 4 and 5. This was not incidental as to both animals and children. One, these animals, another element of Egypt, represented Egyptian deities or gods. Secondly, this penalty of killing the firstborn children is in view of Pharaoh's intent to commit genocide against the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 1 verse 16, Pharaoh had given clear instructions to the midwives of the Hebrew women that in helping them give birth to watch closely as they deliver, for if the baby is a boy, kill him. Now in preparation and departing from Egypt and surviving through this final plague God is about to unleash, God also instructs Israel and institute what's known as the Passover. This event was an initiative by God. Hence in verse 11 of our text that we read this morning, it is the Lord's Passover and become so significant for Israel. Israel's identity as an emerging nation in the exodus from Egypt was to be marked by the first month of their religious or ecclesiastical year in chapter 12, verse 2, which coincides with the later part of March and the first part of April of our calendar. In verses 3 through 11 in this 12th chapter, the whole community of Israel were given several instructions for the Passover. Specifically, there were nine of them. I'm not going to give you all nine. I'm just going to give you three of them. Uh, one of the nine was that the head of each household is to select a lamb kid according to the number of people representative in their home. Another one of the nine, each animal must be slaughtered in the evening or at twilight, meaning between either between sunset and dark or between the decline of the sun, somewhere between 3 and 5 o'clock p.m. and sunset on the 14th day, that animal had to be slaughtered. A third one of the nine, the blood from the animals 
is to be applied to the door frame of each house. The door frame, the entryway of getting into that home. There was to be blood from the slaughtered animals plastered upon the frame of the doorway to that home, on the top and on the sides. One commentary makes notes, notice that in all of the instructions, says this, quote, no direction was given for putting blood on the threshold. The reason is that the blood was already there. The lamb was evident, evidently slain at the door of the house that was to be protected by its blood. This point is not simply one of academic interest, but it concerns the accuracy of type in terms of rich symbolism. The door of the house wherein the Israelite was protected had blood on the lintel or the cross piece and on the side post and on the step. With vivid imagination, one uh, theologian, Arthur Pink, sees this as a marvelous picture of Christ on the cross with blood above where the thorns pierced his brow, blood at the sides from his nail-pierced hands, blood below from the nail-torn feet. This may seem to be a bit imaginative, straining too far for what they call types. But we know without question there's truly a connection between Passover and Calvary, unquote. I must submit to you that what happened through the Passover lamb in Israel's experience happens now through Jesus Christ in our experience. For 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 declares, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And so the Passover was a type of Christ who is our Redeemer. So what about then the substance of the sign? What's the meaning of the sign? What is it of this blood that was shed? On the same night while the Israelites were to eat and feast on this Passover meal, God was going to, as it says in the text, pass through the land of Egypt to execute judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He states again in chapter 12, verse 13, I like the way it reads in the New Living Translation, it reads like this, but the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood is God's sign bearing special significance. The sign was not merely a marker as of a neon light that catches somebody's attention because of its brightness. Uh, for no laser beam, no bright paint, nothing that glows in the night would have met the criteria for the destroyer to pass over. The blood signified a life had been given and sacrificed for the life of the flesh, according to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it's through the blood that God's covenant is ratified, making it, therefore, officially valid. 
And whenever God gives a sign, it shows or confirms something in the past and the present and the future. In Israel's case, and also for us, the blood on the doorpost was a sign of three things. Tell somebody, the blood on the doorpost was a sign of three things. The first one is this. The blood was a proof of distinction. In other words, we are separated. The blood was proof of a distinction. Well, again, it reads in 13, and the blood shall be for you a token upon the houses where you are. And the blood shall be to you for a token or a sign upon the houses where you are. They were separated. What that means, they were separated unto the Lord. The term for token and sign meant an indicator, a signal of something. It distinguished one thing from another. In chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, states that when God throw, goes through Egypt at midnight, that there would be a cry throughout the land, such as never has been ever before and nor will again. But against the children of Israel, it, quote, shall be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark, unquote, at a person or an animal that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction. The King James calls it put a difference. That the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So as to the blood, it made a distinction. The blood marked them. It identified them as the people of God. And so the blood of Jesus Christ on me, the blood of Jesus Christ on you, what that says is that I or that we belong to God. Just holler out and say, I belong to God. We are separated from the world unto God by the blood of Jesus. And the blood makes claim on our life. And so I am not my own anymore because I have been bought with a price. And let me tell you, that price was nothing but the precious blood of Jesus. Some of you may remember, if you were old enough, and going back to some of the old uh, meetings in the Church of God in Christ, but in 1999, the Kojic First Jurisdiction of Louisiana Mass Choir revived the song, I Belong to God, that was written by now Supervisor Vanessa Winbush Gatlin. And originally, though, it was recorded by the Kojic UNAC Choir, what we call AIM now, used to be called UNAC. And it was recorded uh, by them in 1982 under Dr. Matty Moss Clark, which declares, I belong to God. From the top of my head to the sole of my feet, I belong to God. Does anybody here belong to God? Some of y'all might know Big Daddy Wee's version of the song. He said, here we are now children of a mighty God. We have been marked, marked by grace. I belong to God. I belong to Jesus. Saved by your power and bought with your blood. I'll say to the darkness, you do not own me anymore. Oh, I belong 
to God. Tell somebody one more time if you don't mind. The blood on my life is proof of my distinction. So one thing is that the blood was proof of distinction and that we have become separated. Secondly, the blood was a pledge of mercy. That means that we have been spared. The second part of that verse goes on to say, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood was a sign that the lives of the Israelites firstborn would be spared. The blood was a sign or mark on that house for the destroyer to pass over, not to touch anything in that house. Psalm 103 states this about God. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, plenteous or abounding in mercy. He hath not dealt with us after our sins or our transgressions, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities or our crookedness. The New Living Translation says, He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. And it goes on and says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Uh, the point of this verse is that if God gave us what we deserved, we all would perish. None would be spared. But tell somebody, thank God that he's merciful. Not only is God merciful, but he's also a promise keeper. How many of you have ever told somebody, your boss, your spouse, or even your pastor, I will do this, I will do that. Don't raise your hand. Maybe I should. Let me see your hand. How many of anybody ever said anything like that? Not too many want to admit to <laughs> All right. In essence, when we say I will do something, in actuality, without saying so, we are making a pledge. We're making a pledge. In one sense, making a pledge is equivalent to making a promise. Does anybody know how many I wills does the Bible record God say? Well, I tell you, it's an enormous amount that God says, I will. They include, I will be with you. I will make a way for you. I will never leave you. I will give you rest. I will fight your battles for you. I will protect you. I will make a covenant with you. I will be your God. I think you get the picture. The list of God's I wills in the Bible is exhaustive. Has anybody ever experienced God fulfilling his I will? Any witnesses in the house? Anybody experienced what God said he was going to do for you? Well, in all actuality, the Israelites, along with Egypt, should have lost their firstborn to the angel of death. But God is merciful and a promise keeper. God gave Israel a pledge when he said, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Out of mercy, God's compassionate love, he provided a substitute 
in the Passover lamb. Therefore, he did not deal with his people according to their sins, but instead he passed over because of the blood on the doorpost which signified his mercy. So by what right do we stand before God, one commentator asked. We have no inherent right of ourselves to do so. God provides that right for us. However, in Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Just as with Israel in the Exodus, God does not deal with us, deserve what we deserve as sinners and because of sin. Indeed, God's mercy, therefore, becomes triumphant because his mercy triumphs over his wrath and it triumphs over our sin. Because of God's pledge of mercy, we have been spared by the blood of Jesus Christ in the new covenant by which God says through the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 and verse 12, for I will be merciful unto their unrighteousness or to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Tell somebody again, thank God for, no, y'all got to really think about that. Thank God for his mercy. I hope you're getting the picture. If it wasn't for his mercy, death without life again. Death is for sure. And so the blood was a proof of distinction. It was a pledge of mercy. Lastly, the blood was protection from judgment. The latter part of that 13th verse again says, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. In other words, we're shielded. Tell somebody we're shielded. We're separated. We're spared. We're shielded. God is not only a promise keeper, but many of his promises we find him also to be a protector. A protector is a guardian. One who, someone who is, who takes charge of the affairs of another. Being a protector is the same as acting as a shield or a defender. Psalm 18 and 30 and Proverbs 3, 30 and 5 state, As for God, he is a buckler, he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him, to those who take their refuge in him. And so the ten plagues God inflicted on the Egyptians had either a devastating or destructive effect. Yet in each of them, we see God's hand of protection over Israel. As previously stated, the Israelites, along with Egypt, should have lost their firstborn in the tenth plague. But in the execution of that final plague, God unleashes, he promised to them, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. In stating that, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike. God was saying, I will shield your households from the judgment that I've pronounced, the death of your firstborns. The firstborn represented so much in the Israelite economy. Psalm 91 depicts God as the great protector. Portions of it read like this in the NLT. And we're about through. 
Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feather. Again, God's a protector. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. And so the New Testament believers, protection from judgment is the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 9, 26 through 28 says, But now, once and for all, he, Christ that is, has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. The blood is a sign. The blood is proof of our distinction of being separated, thus belonging to God. The blood is a pledge of God's mercy because him being a God of mercy and promise, that blood is a pledge. He says, I will spare you. The blood is our protection, shielding us from the judgment that we rightfully deserve. Does anybody thank God for the blood? For it's because of the blood we are marked for God's preservation and his protection through the pledge that he's given to us.